0: 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's on page 1148 in the uh, church Bibles. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And um, I'm profoundly grateful that Phil uh, earlier read those verses from Isaiah 42. Um, I hope you can remember those, I hope those can stick in your brain when we we learned that Jesus is not someone who comes to crush, but someone who takes what is bruised and gently restores it, who takes a flickering flame and gently brings it back to full flame. And I say that because I think what we're going to look at this afternoon, and I have been profoundly aware of this as I've prepared it, I think this is really hard. I think, firstly, I think it's hard to understand. This is a hard chapter of the Bible. But not only is it hard to understand, I also think it's really hard to accept. I really do. And I'm aware of that this afternoon. And uh, I've been praying. I've been praying for us as a church family that we would be kind to each other and help each other. That we'd hear the gentle voice of our saviour Jesus and and understand what he has to say. So I'm going to read uh, um, chapter 7 verses 1 to uh, 16. And then we'll work on this together. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does... For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In Corinth, we've seen over the last few weeks that there is a, it's a mess. In fact, it's not too strong to say that there is a crisis in Corinth in the church. And I know that's not too strong a word. You may say that's a bit of an overdramatic word, you know, crisis. I know that's the word because look at verse 26 of chapter 7. That's the word Paul uses. In verse 26, which we'll look at next week, he says, Because of the present crisis. As Paul thinks about the church in Corinth, he says... There is something so serious, it's not a little problem, it's not a small issue, it's a crisis. That is, it is threatening the whole existence of this church. Well, what is the crisis? What is it that is threatening the church in Corinth? Well, we saw this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 5, verse 1. Go back to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the crisis in Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. There is gross sexual immorality going on within this church, and Paul says that is a crisis. That's what he's dealing with. Now that's important for us to understand, because we need to listen to the context of what this is written into. We need to understand why Paul says the things he says as so strongly as he says them, and it's because of this massive crisis. Corinth, the culture of Corinth around the church, was completely uh, sexualized. Sex was highly prized. It was seen as an ultimate thing. It was seen as something that was to be desired above anything else. And the desire for sex had crept into the church and taken hold and consumed the church. And the church viewed sex a bit like the appetite for food. If you're hungry, get some food. If you want sex, get some sex. With whoever, however you want. The desire for sex is to be satisfied with whatever takes your fancy. Even someone within your own family. That's what's happening in Corinth. Now before we go on, it's, it's not hard to see that The culture we live in is not a million miles away. Not a million miles away from that. If you want it, just take it. As long as you don't hurt anyone. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? How can you tell me I'm wrong? It's just a natural desire. It's the way that I am. How can it be wrong when it feels right? That's what Paul is speaking into. I'm free. I'm I'm free to do whatever I want. Well, Paul is going to teach us what it really means to be God's people. I've got to say, look, if, we, if as a church we were not committed to preaching through the whole Bible, there is no way I would be touching this chapter. This is not a chapter you flick through and go, what should I do this Sunday? Oh, 1 Corinthians 7, that'd be nice. Do you know, This is why we preach through whole books of the Bible. Because we don't want to avoid the difficult bits. Because the difficult bits are God's word to us and we need to hear them. If all that we ever hear is what we want to hear, then we're not really listening to God, we're just listening to ourselves. Here is God saying hard stuff to us. It is our commitment to preaching God's words that leads us to look at chapters like this. And as I say that, that means we need to look carefully what it really says. Let's listen carefully to it. And we began to see two weeks ago the radical rethinking that Paul is urging this church to embrace. Just look at the last two sentences of chapter six. This is very important. I know there's a whacking great number seven and a little headline, but Paul was just right. He just carried straight on. So look at the last two ver- chapters, uh, last two verses of chapter six. Paul says, "Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price." Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Here is the fundamental view. We drummed this into us two weeks ago. Our bodies are not our bodies. They're his bodies. He bought them. He paid. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus paid for our bodies. He bought us. Our bodies are not lumps of meat with basic desires that must be satisfied, but our bodies are beautiful creations of God that are designed to reflect an image and show his glory to the world. Our bodies are not ours because we happen to be the ones who live in our bodies. Our bodies are his because Jesus went to a cross and shed his blood to pay for us. He bought you, if you are a Christian this afternoon, he paid for you. It cost his life. And if you're here this afternoon and you're not yet a Christian, it's fantastic that you're here. I want you to understand this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is not someone who does nice things and doesn't have sex and doesn't do bad, rude things. A Christian is someone, first and foremost, who says, Jesus bought me. He paid everything for me. I was lost. I was far away. And Jesus paid Now, with that fundamental building block in place, our bodies were bought by Jesus. Paul turns to address some specific issues that the Corinthian church had raised. So they've obviously written to him, right? They've obviously written to him because he says, now for the matters that you wrote about. So he's now turning to address their particular issues that they've got. And I'm going to try and show you two big headlines. I want to get these two headlines in place. They're kind of... I think they summarise what the whole chapter is teaching and then he applies it in different ways to different groups. So we're going to get the two headlines in place and then over the next, today and next Sunday, we'll kind of really try and drill that down into what it, how that applies to different groups. We're going for the big headlines today, but Paul is going to shake us up. Some of what I'm going to say sounds very strange. and This is the thing that's challenging me this week. It doesn't just sound strange in our, in our culture outside. I think this sounds strange to our church culture. I think Paul is going to correct our thinking as a church around these issues. And let me also say this is not the sum total of what the Bible says about sex and marriage. This is not everything. This is one part. It is spoken into this crisis situation of sexual immorality in Corinth. But we've got to hear it. We breathe the air of sexual freedom, sexual expression, where sex has become an ultimate thing, a right. Where to deny someone sex is like denying them oxygen. You can't do that. It's a basic human right. Well, here comes the first headline from Paul. And I warn you, these these are shocking. Um, Here's the first one. The goodness of a life without sex. That's the first thing I want to try and show you. The goodness of a life without sex. So have a look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, we just stop there for a second. People argue about this verse. In fact, people argue about most verses in 1 Corinthians 7, as far as I can see. But people argue about this verse and the argument is, is Paul quoting the Corinthians or is he actually saying what it says? Does that make sense? So the little quotation marks have been put in, but there is no punctuation in Greek. So that is added in to try and say this is what we think is going on. So it sounds very different, doesn't it? Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Is that Paul's statement or is that the church's view? Maybe it's difficult to work that out. And the reason I think we might want it to be a Corinthian statement is because it just sounds so weird to us. Paul cannot seriously be saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman because, because the Bible teaches that sex. Paul cannot be... Surely Paul's not saying that. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. And the reason I think that is because he says it again in 1 Corinthians 7. Twice more, in fact. In fact, he does the same thing. Look, there's a but, right? There's three buts, and the but is marriage, right? Let me show you what I mean. Verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, right? Okay, but then you might say, okay, fine. Here it comes again, okay? Um, have a look at verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. And then he does it again in verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. I think Paul is saying to this church, it is possible to live a life without sex that is absolutely good. It is good not to have sexual relations with a woman for a man the other way around. So it seems to me there's no need for us to assign this statement to the Corinthians because this is what Paul is saying. Now this is strange to us because it strikes right at the heart of one of our greatest idols. We have so elevated sex in our society, maybe even in our church culture, so elevated marriage to say that To imagine someone who lives their life with no sexual relationship, we'd say, what a sad place to be. Marriage, sex, they're an idol. In fact, we might even say, no, that's dangerous. To repress sexual desire, to deny ourselves, that's dangerous. But Paul says, it's good. For someone to remain single, for someone to remain unmarried, for someone to not have sex... Is good. It is good, Paul says. Do you see? Not just, well, it's a shame, but never mind, just the way it is. No, it is good. There is a goodness. Now, we may have to say why. We'll see more reasons why next week. Fundamentally, it's because sex is not ultimate, marriage is not ultimate. The Bible has a lot to say about this whole issue and about self-control and about the, the issue of our desires. Just because self is screaming at us that we want something, we don't simply say yes. In the same way, look, as, as, a, as a parent, if you walked into a shop and you saw a two-year-old screaming, going, I want that dolly. And the parent's like, no, you're not having it. And they just kept screaming and screaming, oh, fine, have the dolly. We would all think, ah, terrible parent, what a terrible parent, what a terrible thing to do. And yet that's exactly how we treat our desires. They scream at us, I want sex, I want this, I want this, I want a fine, whatever, have it. And actually there is a good, right place for self-control that says to the little two-year-old stamping its foot in our heart, no. No. That is not good. And that self denial, that self control is good. It is a beautiful thing. There is, look, there is reward, there is joy, there is blessing there. Look, even as I say this, right, I can feel how hard this is, especially as I'm married. I, this is a difficult talk to do because I'm married. I understand that. You know, it's easy for you to say. You're the (laughs) two-year-old. We'll get to marriage in a minute. But we need to get our thinking straight. Sex is not ultimate. Sex is not eternal. Sex is only temporary. And therefore, we need to not elevate it to a place that it does not belong. And if you want proof of this, then think of Jesus. Just think of Jesus. You're going to tell me that Jesus lived an unfulfilled, disappointing life? In fact, Jesus lived the best of all lives, yet he never had sex. He never experienced that. And the reason that Jesus didn't experience sexual, a sexual relationship is because sex is not ultimate. Sex is not necessary to our identity as a human being. Jesus lived a life of self-denial. Just think of all, not just in this area of sex, think of all the ways that Jesus lived a life of self-denial. Think of everything that he could have taken by right. We sang in that song earlier, he walked my road and he felt my pain. Jesus walked the same road that we walk. Jesus denied himself. He could have taken everything by right. He could have had whatever he wanted. Have you ever thought of the extraordinary self-denial that Jesus showed? The eternal Son of God, he said no. Lots of good things that Jesus experienced a desire for, but he said no to. And the ultimate act of self-denial was at the cross where he died. We sang in one of the other songs, um, there in the garden of tears, my heavy load he chose to bear. His heart with sorrow was torn, yet not my will but yours, he said. Jesus chose to deny his will in order to obey his father. Jesus chose to deny himself in order to go to a cross and die to deny his desire for glory, selfish glory and comfort and freedom, but instead go to a cross and die in pain. And our salvation, your salvation rests on the self-denial of Jesus. So don't you dare tell me that self-denial is somehow subhuman. The self-denial is somehow cruel or harsh or unkind. Jesus chose to deny himself because of the greater joy that lay ahead of him. And you were not created ultimately for sex. You were not created ultimately for sex. You were created ultimately for Jesus. That's the ultimate thing. That's the only place you find joy and freedom. And if we think that sex is the thing that will bring us identity and joy and freedom and happiness and blessing, then we're wrong. Because it won't. Only Jesus can. And therefore, there is a goodness in a life without sex. Just turn to um, Matthew 19 for a second. Um, I just want, let's just make sure we've got this clear. Paul is speaking, um, this is page 986, page 986. Paul is uh, really coming straight out of what Jesus has taught. Jesus has been teaching about um, marriage, and he's been teaching how good marriage is. We are going to get to that before you think I've completely lost the plot. We are getting to that, but... Verse 10, the disciples said to Jesus, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. (laughs) Jesus replied, verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. There are some people who are unable physically to have sex, That means that if sex is fundamental to my experience of being human, then they cannot experience a full humanity. But it's not. Because you can live a good life without sex. There are some people who choose to live that way. Who actually can accept that. And who can say, I, I will forego this good gift of sex in order to live a life devoted to Christ. Jesus seems to think that's good. There's a goodness in a life without sex. Now, this must be true. And I want us to understand this. I want us to grasp hold of this because if we don't understand this, then we will constantly feel like we're missing out. Now, I know that these are big issues and are painful things, But let me just talk to those of you who are currently not married. If you're here and you're not married, I want you to know that there is a good life for you without sex. You don't need sex in order to fulfill you and to make your life happy. You don't need it. You need Jesus. And therefore, in the situation that you are in now, you deny yourself in order to love Jesus. It is good for a man not to have sex relations with a woman. We need to smash this idol of sex. But there is a second point. There is a second point. Because at this point you might all say, well, let's just go and join a monastery. Uh, let's just go and be monks and nuns and do that. That is absolutely not what Paul is saying. Absolutely not, and we know that because of the big but, which always makes me laugh. And uh, marriage is a but, 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 Here's the second big headline. Um, it's that marriage is for the battle. That's what marriage is for. Now, remember, please hear me through this, because this is going to sound really negative today. And I want you to keep, keep, keep remembering this is not everything that the Bible teaches about marriage. But as far as I can see, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is saying, Look, if you have to, get married. Now, look, please, there's lots more to say than that. I'm just trying to show you what Paul is saying here. But I think this is actually very profound because it turns our thinking on its head. We think marriage is the ideal, it's the perfect thing. Uh, and if you can't get that, and just be single, Paul says, "Live for Christ. Be single. Be." And if you have to, you get married. That's what he says. That's, a, that's the language he uses. Verse six, he says, "I say this as a concession." Ugh. Now, look, this is not the whole teaching. Sex and marriage is a great gift from God. It's a good, good, good thing. But Paul is writing into this crisis situation. He says, you better just avoid sexual, sex altogether. But if you cannot, and if you... Then get married. So look at verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. And then he says a similar thing, uh, which I read already, down in verse 9. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's face it, this isn't very romantic, is it? Can you imagine a guy proposing to a girl? Will you marry me? Yes. What what is it that you you love so much about me? Well, to be honest, I'm burning with passion. (laughs) And uh, Paul says I should get married. (laughs) That would be a very godly <laughs> biblical answer. Don't try it. <laughs> Keep the burning with passion. <laughs> but do you see? Paul says marriage is for the battle. Marriage is one of the gifts that God has given. So have a look at what he says. It is each one should have sexual relations with his own wife. Now, this is important, you see, because self-denial is not out of the window. It's not that once you get married, there's no need to deny yourself anymore. Because the problem is that the two-year-old toddler tantrum just changes its tune once you get married. It stamps its feet and it says, not that one, have another one. Get another one. It's so boring. Sex and marriage is so boring. Go somewhere else. Do something else. Find something else that's better. You see? You still have to say no. You still have to deny yourself. You still have to say shut up. No. Self-control. You still have to deny yourself. Each one should have sex with their own husband and their own wife. One man, one woman committed to one another in this battle for purity saying we're going to help each other to be pure and to fight the sexual two-year-old tantrum monster thing that keeps trying to pull me away. And the language is so strong. There is a duty the husband should fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. I know that we're swept along by romance. I know that every sexual encounter is supposed to be this romantically beautiful thing with string quartets and stuff. I know that, but that's not... The Bible says, no, there is a dutiful element to it. Kills it, doesn't it? (laughs) And look, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. You can hear people stamping their feet. no, that's so dangerous. It's okay, because I'm so glad the next verse is there, aren't you? (laughs) Because it works the other way around too. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Please notice this is a giving thing. Sex within marriage is a giving thing. You are giving. Paul never says you take it. He says you give it. Paul never says to the man, "You notice this, Paul never says to the man, you demand sex from your wife. Never. Wives give. Paul never says to the wives, you demand sex from your husband. He says, no, husbands, you give. That is how sex within a marriage is to work. A giving to one another. A joyful, willing giving of ourselves. Not simply out to satisfy my own desire, but actually to make it my goal to satisfy my wife's desire. Marriage is a key weapon in the battle with sexual immorality. It's so countercultural. Please, I'm going to say this again because this is so important. The goal of sex within marriage is not my satisfaction. That's not what it's about. Sexual immorality, that's all about my satisfaction and selfishness. It's all about me. Can I say, that is why, and I'm, I want to be clear, that is why masturbation is wrong. Because it's all about me. It's all about my needs, my desires. That is why pornography or demanding sex from my partner, they're all distortions of the goodness of sex within marriage. Sex is always about giving, giving, giving. And anything that's about taking is a distortion of God's good gift of sex. It's giving, giving. When a couple get married, it does not mean the end of sinful sexual desire. I think that's a great shock in marriage. I think when I got married, I thought, oh, this is it, this is it. No more battle with sexual sin anymore. That'll be sorted. But it doesn't happen like that. And if you're a husband and that has happened like that, I'd love to find out how that works. <laughs> it's an ongoing battle. These desires, they're ongoing and we fight. But now marriage is deployed in helping one another, it's giving. And even in marriage, sex is not ultimate. Can you see this? There's something better than sex even within marriage. This is going to come as a shock. But it's prayer. <laughs> Look what he says. Verse five, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Isn't that interesting? The sexual relationship is not the ultimate. That means that my friend, who married his beautiful bride on her wedding day, who, be, who then became terribly sick and has been in a wheelchair for many, many years and is unable to have sex, their marriage is still able to be good. Because sex is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. A relationship with God is ultimate. And therefore, husbands and wives, yes, you give to one another in sex, but more than that, you pray together. And you love Jesus together. And then come together again and so say that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. You see? I think this is a beautiful picture of sex within marriage giving in this battle, helping one another. The battle with sexual desire is a battle that is fought within marriage. So look at verse 6 of me. I say this as a concession, not as a command. And then verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. I think that's a very difficult verse. Because you hear people sometimes talk about the gift of singleness. Have you ever heard people talk about that? That's a weird thing, isn't it? Because my guess is that we're like, I don't want that gift, that's a rubbish gift. That's like when my aunt used to buy us National Trust membership. It's just like a... (laughs) I don't want that. I'd rather not have a gift than that. Because that means like hours of my holidays spent in boring houses. I don't want that gift. Can I just have no gift? And then you hear people talk about the gift of singleness. I don't want that gift. I don't want that. That's like a really rubbish gift. Don't call it a gift. That's like. The word gift actually is the same word as grace. What God gives is grace. And if God calls you to a life of singleness, if God calls you to a life where you never have a sexual relationship with someone else, I passionately believe he will give you grace to live it. He will give you grace. And you may sit here thinking, I could never ever do that. And you're right, you absolutely couldn't. But he will give you grace. And some of the most wonderful Christian men and women I know are people who have never enjoyed that. Never experienced that. But sex isn't ultimate. Jesus is. And that's why in the song, I, I love the songs we sang, I didn't even choose them, Phil chose them, but they all fit. That's why in that song we sang, when the skies part and the trumpets sound, the bride, that is the church, will run to her lover's arms and every tear will be wiped away and every broken heart will be mended. And every unfulfilled desire will be fulfilled. And every disappointment and every sexual encounter that has been so painful and so raw, and every disappointment in marriage and every failure, all of it will melt away. As the one thing that is ultimate blows away all of our pain. This is beautiful what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians. And I want, us to, I want to encourage us to embrace this. It is hard. Let me say through, I'm, get, I'm, I'm actually going to stop at verse 7 now. I'm going to apply the, do the rest of this uh, next time. Let me just apply this in a, in a few ways. A, a couple of things. Because we're quite a young church. We have, probably have a slightly higher proportion of unmarried people than lots of others. So can I just make a few comments? This is not dating advice, right? That would be like, <laughs> But I do want to say a few things. And I I just want to give us a few warnings because we're a family and I want us to help each other with this. And sometimes we don't help each other. Here's the first thing. I want us to be really careful of flirting. I want to say to you that I think flirting in the light of 1 Corinthians 7 is utterly unbiblical. Because flirting, as far as I can see, is me trying to gain some sort of a buzz. Some sort of a sexual buzz from a relationship that I'm not fully committed in. So I want to say to us, let's not be a church that flirts. Let's be a church where guys and girls, if you like one another, talk about it. <laughs> be honest. Don't flirt. It's so painful, right? It's so painful when someone's going, oh, I don't know, do they like me? Oh, I'm not sure, am not sure. I know this isn't easy. I know this is hard. But what a beautiful thing it would be if actually we said, you know what? Um... I I, I don't know maybe this is I, I, I quite like you should we go out for a drink let's not flirt I think it's selfish let's not lead one another on and second let's be a church of kindness where we're kind to one another where we genuinely care for one another where we take care of one another Let's be a church of community where those who are married or who are engaged or who are in dating don't become so wrapped up in themselves that those who are not get excluded and left out. See one of the things that the Bible says about the church family is that the church is God's wise idea because the one thing the Bible does say is it is not good for man to be alone. That's fulfilled in the church. That's where we find relationships that are deep and lasting and real, and I want to say let's pursue those and let's not become wrapped up with one another, but let's be open, let's be sharing let's be giving out to one another so that's what that's that's what we've seen those are the two big he- headlines next next week I'll apply it to lots of different situations to the married to the unmarried to the uh, we'll look at the idea um, about divorce, we'll look at various things next week that comes in the later chapter, but for now let's just take those, I think we've had enough today those two headlines the goodness of a life without sex and marriage is for the battle and I want us to pray and I want us to take some time and um, wonderfully we're going to celebrate communion together where we eat eat bread and drink wine together and it may be that for some of us we We're saying, actually, I I think I have been pursuing sex as an ultimate thing. I think that has been something that's too important to me. And perhaps today Jesus says, would you let go of that and take hold of me? Would you find your satisfaction in me? Perhaps he's saying that to some of you this afternoon. Perhaps in some of our marriages, we need to pray with one another. We need to help each other. We need to battle and fight. So we're going to take some time and we're going to enjoy communion together. And in one sense, this meal, it is like, this is the meal that Jesus gave us. And it's the meal where Jesus holds out bread and wine to us. And he says, here's a little taste of the great wedding banquet that's coming. The little taste of what you will one day experience as you run to me. And I want to encourage us to eat and to drink with joy this afternoon. But we're going, to, um, we're going to sing. We'll have some time um, to, to pray about this stuff, to come forward and take bread and wine. And just let you know as well, at the end of the service, after we've kind of finished our last song, if there are things that you want to talk through a bit more or pray through a bit more, then uh, Linda, who's my wife, uh, and I will be here, and Matt and Kimberly will be just down at the front. You can come and talk, pray, cry. Let's help each other, right? Let's bring those things to God and to respond to those things together. But why don't we join together and sing. Let's sing um, of Jesus, the one who died for us. I stand amazed in his presence. How glorious, how marvelous. Stand. Let's sing.